the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2's Unlocking Accountable Care. I am your host, Emily George. Thanks for joining us today. We're here today with Dr. David Jones, Associate Professor in the Department of Health Law Policy and Management at the Boston University School of Public Health. Welcome, David. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to speak to you today about some of your most recent research on how to generate bipartisan solutions to some of our most complex healthcare problems. So let's jump right in. Okay. Can you just start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your research? Sure, yeah. So I am a professor at Boston University School of Public Health and have a somewhat unique background for a professor in public health in that my interest is very much about health, health policy, but also politics. So I have a a degree in political science as well. So I'm very interested in the politics of health or what some people call the political determinants of health. Um, So very interested in how policymakers see the world, how they make decisions, what happens, um, you know, all the evidence that researchers produce, all the calls for change that advocates put out there. How do policymakers take that and process it and make decisions from that? So that's what I'm really interested in. So I, um, the bulk of my research time is spent interviewing policymakers. I like going to state capitals in particular. It's kind of my favorite thing to do on the research side um, and talk with legislators, talk with executive branch uh, officials to find out how they decide even what problems to focus on and how from within that they navigated all the different options and then how they made decisions and then what they think those decisions, you know, effects were. Um, So yeah, I I have a bunch of things that I'm working on. Um, related to um, healthcare as it relates to the election and a lot of different things. So this is this is an exciting, interesting time in healthcare politics. It is, and it's very relevant um, to I think many of the conversations that are happening around the country. And I know specifically some of the work you've been doing is um, really looking at how can um, people from different parties coalesce around some of these same ideas to drive change. And so I would love to hear a little bit about that research and some of the interviews that you've been conducting. Sure, yeah, thank you. Um, So I have been working with the Millbank Memorial Fund, um, which is a wonderful organization um, whose whose mission in, in part is to really facilitate conversations and build capacity of policymaking at the state level, really in particular with health. Um, and so we have um, done a series of surveys where we send out surveys to state legislators asking them, what are your priorities on health? Um, and then um, there's a mathematician who's leading that side. And then my role is to go in and interview people in a couple case study states um, to really try to understand what's happening um, around health. What do they see as their priorities? Um, really with the goal of trying to find the points of consensus. Like what, what does you know, the left and the right, what do they see, what do they see in common um, and how do we build on that? Um, and there's been a lot of interesting insights uh, that have come from that process, uh, both the survey and case studies we did two years ago, um, which have been published in a few different places. Um, and we're in the middle of doing a, a follow-up this year, um, which has been real interesting. Um, and as it relates to, you know, bipartisanship, um, 
there's been some, you know, discouraging signs in the sense that like Republicans, maybe not surprisingly, really said their number one priority in health, the thing that's the most important to them uh, is reducing the role of government. That's Republican, mm -hmm. the, the typical response from Republican state legislator across the country. Um, and Democrats said that was their least important priority and their number one priority was expanding coverage. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's a pretty big gap, right? And so how do we, how do we build conversations around that? I think is a really hard thing, but the, the hopeful um, result from that survey was from two years ago was that everyone's number two choice, like number two biggest priority was reducing healthcare costs. Um, so we said, okay, like everyone seems to agree on that. Let's really focus on that and make um, that a focus of bipartisan conversations. Um, and so I went to Topeka, Kansas, and I ran a focus group of state legislators, um, which was the first time I'd ever done that. It was just super fun, sitting around having breakfast together with uh, Republicans, Democrats from the House and the Senate, and putting out there, like, what, what do we have in common? What, what, can, we, uh, what can we work on together? Um, and two things happened, and I did this similar thing in Colorado as well. Um, I learned that the consensus around cost broke down almost immediately once you try to actually define what that means, mm -hmm. right? Some people said, I'm really focused on cost to the consumers, quote unquote, or cost to the government, to providers, to hospitals and insurers. Um, and so it's just what solution you work towards is just very uh, different depending on how you see the problem. Um, but I also came to better appreciate what the party breakdowns are in this country, the ideological breakdowns are actually quite a bit more nuanced than just left versus right, uh, which is very interesting mm -hmm. to me. Well, I will, I will, let's come back to that, because okay. maybe if we come out just to the 30,000 foot view, um, can you just talk through why do we have to have this mm -hmm. bipartisan support to create what you've called durable healthcare reform? Right. Yeah, I mean, so if we look at the history of the ACA over the last 10 years, which is kind of amazing, it's been a decade already, but, um, you know, there were, a, there were quite a few attempts, I think you can argue, uh, to make the passage of the ACA a bipartisan exercise, right? Even just the starting point was not single payer. It was very much taking ideas that Republicans had supported either at the state level or in national policy um, and really try to make it... Um, a bipartisan effort, particularly in the Senate Finance Committee, really tried hard to get Chuck Grassley and Olympia Snow to sign on. Um, but in the end, the Republican leadership really sort of put out the word that this is, we're going to be unified, we oppose at all costs, and that's, that's just the Republican line. Um, and that just set the tone for everything to do with implementation going forward. Um, and so the, the moment President Obama was signing the ACA into law, um, the Attorney General of Florida was signing a lawsuit, um, and then the states were joining, and then it became even things that were really not partisan or controversial, like the health insurance exchanges, mm -hmm. all of a sudden became this um, real big litmus test for the two parties. Um, and so it became very hard to, to implement the ACA, um, which led to the Medicaid expansion being optional, um, and now the, the individual mandate effectively being zeroed out. Um, and, um, and 
such that what effect the ACA has had really depends on what state you live in, right? If you live in a state that's implemented it well and really been proactive um, about signing people up, then the ACA has done a lot. Mm -hmm. If you live in a state that has resisted the ACA and avoided implementation and sort of actively undermined implementation, then it really hasn't done as much. Um, and, you know, there's still major question marks about whether the ACA is going to survive pending lawsuits. Um, you know, Trump, President Trump still says he has a plan for getting rid of the ACA and replacing it, right? And so it's still kind of lingering out there, uh, this possibility that it's, it's not going to be durable, it's still not going to last. Um, and all of that would have been just so much easier if the ACA had been bipartisan. So I think going forward, it's just, it's, it's so much, I, I think it can be really important to, to have that bipartisan buy-in. However, I don't think anyone's going to do that. I, I, like, I, don't think, I don't think anything anybody's proposing really could be bipartisan in a way, like at the big national, big picture level. Um, and so it's kind of unrealistic. So you have the split on the left now where the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders are saying, like, forget bipartisanship. Like, they're going to fight us no matter what we do. Let's go all in on Medicare for all. And let's just, let's solve the big problems. Let's stop doing the incremental piecemeal things. Um, and then sort of the more moderate wing of the party is saying, uh, that's never going to happen. The only path forward is incremental. And they're, you know, and the Republicans are going to fight us on that anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's, there's instances throughout history um, which are interesting, potentially provide interesting lessons, right? Where the creation of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, I don't think was particularly bipartisan in some ways. It was just Lyndon Johnson had huge majorities in Congress, right? I think they had something like 68 senators um, and like 100 something majority in the House. Um, so they could kind of pass whatever they wanted as long as they could unify the Southern Democrats with the Liberal Democrats. Um, and Medicare Part D was extremely partisan, uh, 2003, I think, um, and really some pretty intense maneuvering to just barely squeak that through the House by like one vote or something like that. Um, and those three programs have turned out to be pretty durable. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm disagreeing with myself a little bit here to say, like, I think it's really, in this day and age, it's really important to try to find something that's bipartisan and has consensus because it's going to be fought in court. It's going to be fought at the state level. Um, but if you can get a large enough majority in Congress and if you can get enough unity within your party, um, then, then you have a shot. And getting something through. Um, but I don't think either party is going to have anywhere near a large enough majority in Congress in 2021 to do anything um, on health, um, nor will they have nearly enough unity mm -hmm. to do anything. So, mm -hmm. so I, all that is a long way of saying, I think, ultimately, um, when we're thinking about the future of health reform, we have to think about what's happening at the states, because mm -hmm. that's where it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So going back to some of the, the findings that you found when you were doing these interviews among states and, and specifically in Topeka, 
What were some of those nuances that you found mm. that, that you were getting to earlier? Yeah, so we found in particular the, the Republican Party in a, in a lot of states is, is split. Like in some ways, there's really three, three parties in this country right now. Um, Democrats are sort of unified or willing to unify around an idea. I mean, there's a bit of a, a split that I highlighted a minute ago between the sort of more liberal Medicare for all side of the party versus the more incremental side of the party. But generally, they would, at the end of the day, I think, come together on something. Um, whereas in the Republican side, this, this time when we've been doing the survey, we've tried to get at some of these nuances a little bit we found that actually half the Republicans um, put reducing the role of government as their number one priority, and half the Republicans who responded put it as a much lower priority. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I've gone out and done interviews, I was in Denver a few weeks ago, I was in Burlington and Montpelier, Vermont a few weeks ago, which didn't really help sort of get into the Republican dynamics across the country, but going to Michigan next week and South Carolina in a couple weeks. Um, what, what I'm hearing is that Republicans in rural parts of, of these states, uh, so the like, eastern plains of Colorado, um, are seeing such major problems in terms of the financial viability of their hospitals that they are willing to take any solution, even if it's government-centered, even if it's you know, Medicaid expansion. Um, in Kansas, as an example, I definitely heard that. Republicans in rural areas just pleading for Medicaid expansion. Um, and they got very close in, in Kansas uh, to doing Medicaid expansion because they saw that as a way to keep the hospitals open. Um, and then on the other side um, is more suburban, uh, what we might associate with the, the Tea Party a little bit, uh, type Republican who's, who's very much framing everything in terms of liberty, freedom, values, small government. Um, and so, you know, the. In Kansas, the kind of Republican on that side looked at hospital closures and really blamed the hospitals and said they're just not running these hospitals efficiently. It's their fault, um, you know. Which you know, I think there's a case to be made in, in a lot of directions, but I think just it's clear that it's just the financial model of running a rural hospital in a rural community is just it's really hard, um, mm -hmm. and so it's hard to blame the executives for that. Um, so anyway, so just all that to say that I think there's really, I see there's really three main parties in this country. Mm -hmm. So to circle back to your earlier question about bipartisanship and durability of health reform, I think at the state level in particular, really depends on the state. But if you can get a sort of a de facto coalition of Democrats and the moderate Republicans to get on board with something, then you probably have something that's durable. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean that's so it's not full like unity of everybody bipartisanship, but there's there's I think a bit more common ground there than people realize. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because one of the big findings that you found in some of your research had to do with access, and that most of the most of the people in the various parties could agree that um, increasing access was extremely important. And, um, and I'm just curious, could you talk a little bit about the variation across states and um, how it has, um, how access impacts the um, equity mm -hmm. that we're seeing of the people being served? Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on some of that. Yeah, great question. Um, so when I was in 
Topeka doing this focus group, my starting point was to say, okay, so here are the survey results. We heard that Democrats really cared about access, Republicans ranked it as a lower priority. And then I went on to ask questions and a couple of the Republicans in the room interrupted me and they said, hold on, no I didn't. We really care about access, like that's a major priority for us. Um, and then they circle back to this point I was making about uh, rural hospital closures. And so they were really thinking um, in, in those terms. Um, so that's one side. Um, you know, the other side is that the nature of our government is that it's really hard to do anything at the federal level. Um, and so one of the sort of release valves on this political pressure that builds up is to use federalism. To say in a national law, like, okay, we know we want to do something, we have general principles that we're going to require states to do, but then just let the states figure it out, um, which is what happened on the exchanges, which is what the courts ended up ruling should happen on the Medicaid expansion, um, and it's happening a lot in Medicaid innovation of waivers and work requirements and lots of things like that, so that states have gone in just vastly different directions in some cases, um, which has huge equity implications, right? So that if you live in Clarksdale, Mississippi, well, it's not the perfect, yeah, I mean, if you live in Clarksdale, Mississippi, uh, northwestern part of Mississippi, a place where I've been spending a lot of time lately, um, and you're poor, you don't have access to health insurance unless you are a parent or a pregnant woman and your income is like 26% of the federal poverty level. I mean, so you have to be a quarter poorer than the federal poverty level, right, to qualify for Medicaid, which is like $5,000 a year, something like that, right? I mean, it's just, it's an impossible threshold. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to get help. Um, whereas if you live across the border in Helena, Arkansas, or if you live, um, you know, in Kentucky or somewhere else, then you qualify for Medicaid up to 138% of the federal poverty level because of the state implementing the ACA Medicaid expansion. Um, so, you know, the nature, the sort of the, the state focus, federalism focus of our, of our approach to policy really opens up huge equity problems um, that I think we just constantly have to wrestle with and Americans are, there's generally such a premium on this, this value of individuality and sort of people trying to make things for themselves that that's a byproduct that we tolerate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you've been spending some time in Mississippi. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing there and what you're looking at? Yeah, sure. So the so a few years ago, this is a shameless plug now, a few years ago I wrote a book um, called Exchange Politics which was really about um, how states decided whether to do a state-based exchange or federal exchange. Um, and I interviewed about 200 people at the state level from across the country, as well as some White House people. Um, and when that was wrapping up, I was really starting to think like, okay, what's the next major project I'm gonna work on? Um, and I you know, was looking ahead to thinking, okay, the ACA is kind of settled now. Like, it's old news. It's not going to really be publishable. It's going to be hard to find funders who are willing to fund research on this. And so I was trying to think about what the next big directions are. And one of the, this, one of the questions that I had in my mind constantly was um, whether the Deep South would ever expand Medicaid. 
Mm -hmm. right? So if you look at any map of the states that have expanded Medicaid, um, you know, it's just this glaring uh, gap in the, in the Deep South. Um, so I became very interested in Mississippi in particular, um, which I had spent some time for my first book. Um, and so I went down there a couple times just to sort of learn the landscape a little bit, meet some policymakers and some leaders. Um, and then pretty quickly the question evolved in my mind from not will Mississippi ever expand Medicaid, but would it matter if Mississippi expanded Medicaid, right? Because the, the healthcare safety net is just so fragile there that it's just so hard to get healthcare services that having an insurance card really wouldn't change your life. Um, and so the idea evolved to writing a book about health equity in the Mississippi Delta, um, which is arguably the least healthy place in the country. Mm -hmm. um, you pick just about any statistic in terms of maternal mortality and um, you know, in low birth weight of infants, obesity, diabetes, whatever. Um, and the Delta is about the worst in the country. And so the book that I'm in the process of writing right now is really about health equity. And it's about all the things that work together to produce health, mm -hmm. which often get called the social determinants of health. Um, and thinking about this question of whether health is an individual person's responsibility or whether it's a societal responsibility and how those two things interact, right? Like what can the person do themselves, right? They can go to the doctor, they can eat well, and they can exercise. Um, but then trying to put those three things in a context of how do you go to the doctor if you live in a community where there are no doctors, right? Issaquina County, Mississippi, there's not a single primary care provider um, and something like 16% of households don't have a car, right? So you have to drive 45 minutes to an hour to Vicksburg or Jackson or Greenville. Um, and that's a huge barrier. So if you have chronic disease and you have to make that trip regularly, um, it's very hard. Um, and then let alone, you know, how do you eat well if there's not a single grocery store in your town or if there's, how do you walk if there's not sidewalks and, you know, the murder rates are really high in these communities. Um, Anyway, so really spending a lot of time doing focus groups and interviews with people in Mississippi to really understand what life is like there. Um, and I have a book that's hopefully going to be coming out next year about this, um, which is really ultimately going to make the argument not that, like, wow, look how bad things are in Mississippi and in the Delta, but really making the argument that this is actually what all of America looks like. It's just on the surface in a different way in the Delta, so we can really see the interaction of race and poverty um, just a little bit more clearly than you can elsewhere. But you know, when I come home and I'm walking home through some neighborhoods of Boston, or I go to other, just about any, I mean, any city in America, right, or any community in America has huge equity issues. Mm -hmm. and, all these same dynamics of access to healthy foods and safe places to walk and access to providers are at play here. So mm -hmm. that's that's what I'm working on these days and thinking a lot about. Wow, it's all so fascinating, everything that you shared. And we've discussed some very important things that are impacting the health of the nation, such as equity, access, social determinants of health. And so I'm curious, where, where do we go from here? What's next? Yeah, super interesting question to me because um, I, you know, I'm, I'm such a nerd 
for health politics and health reform and have been following the election really closely. Um, and so on the one hand, I really enjoy seeing health be such a focus of the debates and, um, and the presidential platforms and so forth. But on the other hand, it's actually been really frustrating and dissonant to hear what's getting debated on you know, the national level presidential campaign and then to think about the people that I've been meeting in Mississippi, right? And sort of the daily realities of, of people's lives. Um, and I think there's a disconnect. And so, you know, where do we go from here? If I sort of, you know, I would love to see the health reform debate shift from being about health care exclusively to really being about health, right? Like, how do we make health the goal? Um, and I think, you know, some, some evidence from my interviews would support this, that if we could shift the conversation from health care reform, health insurance reform, to health reform, uh, population health reform, um, then some of the ideological barriers break down a little bit. Um, and I, it's possible I'm being a little bit too optimistic and a little naive here. Um, you know, because there's some risks that come with changing the narrative a little bit in terms of some people who don't support policies that would actually help the social determinants of health, but then use the social determinants of health language to support work requirements or things like that. Like, I think that it's, it's risky and tricky to sort of go in that direction. Um, you know, I, yeah, so if I, where do we go from here? I would love to see the, the health reform conversation be about health. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, maybe that really means keeping more of a focus on things that aren't called health, too, like mm-hmm. education, universal pre-K, and um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. This was all so interesting. Thank you so much just for taking yeah, the time to you. talk about these things and share your research with us. And that's a wrap. Thank that's you for thank tuning you. in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at DayHealthStrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Godtongue. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.